Hey, I am super excited to announce to you this morning that we're going to begin a new series in 1 Corinthians, Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. It's really essentially what this first epistle to the Corinthian church is about. It's about correcting the carnal behavior in the church. And, and I see that as a mercy from God. I see that as, as a grace from God because God does what? He corrects, he disciplines those whom he loves. And so this is going to be a great series as we begin it. And I'll tell you, I wasn't exactly sure where to go after Job. Uh, the elders and I spent quite a bit of time praying and discussing potential books. We thought Hebrews seemed like a, a pretty good choice at first, and, and then all of a sudden Romans came up, and I thought about Romans, and while I, you know, the best way to really determine, first of all, just if you're in the Bible, you're, you're pretty safe, but I wanted something that maybe would potentially be more specific for RHC, because it's important that as a pastor that, that we address issues that we see in our church, we see in churches, and sometimes you can get into a book that that maybe doesn't address some of the, at that moment, issues that you're dealing with. But like I said, there's always value in being anywhere in Scripture. And the Scripture always seems to address our issues at some point or another. But I was thinking after reading small portions of Romans, after reading a little bit in Hebrews, I thought these are wonderful and they could certainly benefit the church. But I, I thought maybe we need something a little bit more focused. And, uh, and, and this book... When I started reading 1 Corinthians for the first time in probably a few years, I thought, I think this is the book. This is the one we need to go with. And uh, so that's kind of how I came up with the idea for, for this being our next book. Just thinking of, of Corinth and the Christians in Corinth, Corinth was easily one of the most wicked, carnal cities in the ancient world. And the church at Corinth was like a, a little island, a, a little rest stop and island dropped right in the middle of this very, very large, tumultuous sea of iniquity. And it, this little church was just surrounded by constant evil, constant wickedness, constant perversion. And its membership was comprised of Corinthian converts to Christ. Some, some were Jewish people who were converted to Christ. Some were Gentile people converted to Christ. But for the majority of the folks in the church, they had come out of this very, very wicked, uh, difficult city. And uh, sadly, some of these, these converts, uh, and there, there could have been false converts as well, but some of the actual converts had either failed to repent of some of the carnal attitudes and behaviors that they had from before, or maybe some of them kind of returned to some of those sinful carnal patterns after following Jesus for a while. And I think it's wrong for us to think that Christians won't go back to some of the dumb things they were doing beforehand because this is often the case, sadly. And so we're not exactly sure how the, the carnality came about in the church. It was just there. Maybe some of it just never left with some of these believers or maybe they picked it back up. We don't know, but it was there. And I think the parallels... Uh, between the church at Corinth and Corinth as a city, I think the parallels between Corinth and, and our nation and the Corinthian church and our church, I think they're uncanny. Uh, you know, just thinking of the parallels, uh, this, this church was in a carnal city, a carnal empire. We are in a carnal city, a carnal state, a carnal nation. 
uh, the, the church in Corinth was surrounded by wickedness and perversion. Are we not surrounded by wickedness and perversion? Um, this church was plagued by inner or internal carnal attitudes, carnal behaviors. And uh, sadly, and this is true of every church, we here at RHC are at times plagued by carnal attitudes and behaviors within ourselves here, and some more than others. But the parallels are uncanny. The things they were dealing with, we are dealing with. The things that were plaguing that church, they plagued this church and every other real church. So this is why 1 Corinthians made the most sense to me. I feel like it fits where we are at right now as a people, as a church, existing and living as a small island in a sea of iniquity surrounded by unimaginable perversion, right? Things are happening today that I never thought I'd ever see in my lifetime. I hoped I would never see in my lifetime. And so this book fits. It just fits with what we're doing and what's going on. Um, the church at Corinth needed to be lovingly corrected. This church, RHC, needs to be lovingly corrected. So one more parallel there. And uh, this is why it's the perfect book for us. So but what I want to do before we actually get into the, to the book itself and start to exposit the, the verses, um, I, I want to just walk through a brief introduction. And, and the purpose of the introduction isn't just a data unload. It is to build more context to give us a greater understanding of what was playing out, what was going on, why the letter was written, who wrote it, when it was written, and those sorts of things. This is meant to build some, some foundational context so that when we begin to exposit the book, it will make the most sense to us and we'll hold it in context, which is an absolute critical thing when walking through the Word. Uh, firstly, we'll just discuss the title really quickly. Obviously, the letter is named for the city of Corinth, where the church to whom it was written was located. So you've got a church that exists in Corinth. The letter is written to this church, and it's entitled after the name of the city. I don't know if the church was literally called the Church of Corinth. I don't know if that'd be a great name. That's like the Church of Modesto. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to that church, because that sounds awkward. Uh, but in any case, this is a church, a real legitimate Christ-centered church in the middle of Corinth, and the letter bears the name. Just uh, an interesting detail, Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., and, uh, and it had been rebuilt by a very famous and known emperor named Julius Caesar about 100 years later. At first, uh, Corinth was a Roman colony largely populated by Romans, and eventually it became the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Today, Corinth is, has really almost no significance. The only significance it bears today is its historical significance. So today it's not a, a powerhouse city or trade city or anything like it was back in ancient times. Uh, the author and date of, of the epistle here, as indicated in the first chapter and verse, this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul. And his authorship of it really cannot be seriously questioned. You know, sometimes there's a little mystery as to who wrote one of the letters or books in the Bible. And you cannot say that of this book. Pauline authorship has been universally accepted by the church since the first century 
by even early church fathers like Clement of Rome, AD 95, Ignatius, AD 110, Polycarp, who was a friend of John the Revelator or John the Apostle, AD 135, and even a little later by Tertullian or Tertullian, AD 200. So the consensus of the early church fathers, who were important leaders at the time, this is, this is Paul that wrote this. And it was likely written in the first half of AD 55. So 55 AD, after the death of Christ, uh, it was written uh, very likely while Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Uh, the, impos- the apostle Paul, he intended to remain in Ephesus until the end of fall to complete his three-year stay, Acts 20, verse 31. Then he hoped to spend the winter in Greece at Corinth, Acts chapter 20, verse 2. So Paul's the author. It was probably written in 55, and it was written very likely at Ephesus. The background and the setting, we have just the city of Corinth was located in southern Greece. It was, uh, or in what was known then as the province of Achaia. I mentioned that. About 45 miles west of Athens. I think we all know what Athens is. That's like the main Greek city that, that we've all heard of, and some of you in this room have visited it. Shame on you for not taking me. Uh, since Corinth was located along a major trade route, it prospered, and in ancient days, it became a major, major city, second probably to Athens. Uh, it was a big, big, powerful, wealthy city, and it hosted the uh, Ith, it's the Ithmian, the Ithmian Games, which were like the Olympics, because the Olympics were around back then, but it was a little bit smaller than the Olympics. So in order to have a sporting event that was just second to the Olympics, you had to have a major city. They would not have done this in Erlemart, Ceres, Keys. This would have been Sacramento. This would have been L.A. This would have been San Francisco with much less homelessness. So um, this was a big, powerful, impressive, beautiful city. Paul first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Uh, He had been preaching and working in Macedonian cities for quite a time. Um, From Philippi, he had gone to Thessalonica, to Berea, Athens, and then he ended up in Corinth. Acts chapter 16, verse 11, all the way through chapter 18, verse 1. That text lays out that whole part of his missionary journey. Upon arriving in Corinth, he met a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Isn't that nice? Their names are almost matching. When they first met, they were like, hey, our names sound the same. We should get married. Uh, They were Jewish people. They were Jewish people who had been driven out of Rome because you could not be a Jewish person and live in Rome at peace. They wanted all the Jews out of there at a time. And so they were Jewish people that Paul met, and of course Paul was a Jew. They were also tent makers, and if you know anything about Paul, he eventually became or was a tent maker. And he stayed with this lovely Christian couple, and what he did while staying with them was he began to preach regularly in the local synagogue just about every Sabbath. And a couple of other guys that were familiar with Silas and Timothy, they eventually joined Paul. They came from Macedonia and went to Corinth and spent time with Paul. Now soon, many Corinthians, including Jews, uh, Jewish uh, people that lived there and Gentiles, they began, in Corinth, they began to believe in Christ. They responded positively to Paul's 
preaching, consistent gospel preaching. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had worked that out in them. This wasn't something they did on their own. But in any case, there were conversions. There were Corinthian citizens who were converted to Christ under Paul's preaching. Uh, quite a few, actually. And uh, one particular person that was converted was a guy named uh, Crispus. Crispus was his name, and he was the leader of, uh, of the synagogue along with his household. Uh, he and his household, they all trusted in the Lord while hearing Paul preach in the synagogue. It's like Crispus said, yeah, you can come preach at my church. Then Crispus gets saved, his household gets saved, and many Corinthians get saved. Pretty good stuff. Acts 18.8. And Paul continued to minister in Corinth for about a year and a half. And thus planted this church, Acts 18, verse 11. Like most ancient Greek cities, Corinth had an acropolis which rose about 2,000 feet uh, at elevation. It was used for defense and for worship. The most prominent edifice on the acropolis was the Temple of Aphrodite. That is the, it's a, a, a myth, but it is the mythological goddess of love. So there was this massive temple on this acropolis. Some 1,000 priestesses who were religious prostitutes, they lived and worked there at, at the temple of Aphrodite. And in the evening times, they would come down out of, uh, out of the temple and off of the acropolis, and they would go down into the city and offer services to men and travelers and, and foreign visitors and what have you. Now, Corinth, it became just so utterly carnal and utterly morally corrupt that its name, Corinth or Corinthian, became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. Have, have you ever heard the phrase to Corinthianize? If someone is Corinthianizing, they are acting out in their flesh, acting carnally. They are living out the sins of their flesh and these sorts of things. And so there's literally a phrase that came about around this time, maybe a little later. And, and, and if, if you knew of somebody that was just had their life was just going down the tube and they were just completely debauched and immoral and all that, they had been Corinthianized or they had Corinthianized. And so this was a phrase that, that would be put on some people and uh, it represented just gross immorality, drunken debauchery. So uh, the, the city was evil, wicked, carnal, and all that, but it got so bad that people drew a title out of it to put on others. It was a really, really sinful, rough place. I mean, if you can imagine all these prostitutes coming down, well, try not to imagine that, but coming down out of, yeah, do not imagine that, but coming down to, to you know, to sell their services. I mean, this is a, a nightly thing that's going on, and it just tells you that the people in the community were fine with that. They were okay with that. Oh, look, they're out there. They're, they have to make a living. This was the attitude, which is not just Corinthian, but American, right? Maybe we don't have prostitutes coming down out of, out of temples, but we, we, we've got sacrifices being made on the altar of abortion. We've got all sorts of wicked things that people just turn the other cheek and it's just the way it is and it's just the way we are. And that, that was the attitude and mentality in this terrible place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, Paul listed some of the specific sins for which the city was known for. 
Of course, right at the top of the list, you've got idolatry. That's worshiping false gods, worshiping yourself. You've got adultery. You've got homosexuality. Very, very pervasive homosexuality was in this city, kind of like the U.S. You had thievery. You had greed. You had drunkenness. You had revelry. You had swindling. There was a lot of scam artists and stuff going on. And tragically, some of the worst sins were still found amongst the members of the Corinthian church. For example, one of the grossest sins that I can think of was present in the church. Incest. There is, a, there is an instance of incest in the church that Paul deals with. It's just mind-blowing. Paul even says of this particular sin that somebody in your congregation has given them their self over to this sin. And this isn't even a sin that, that the pagans around you are into. So it's just a scary thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. Uh, or no, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. So I'm giving you an idea of, of what's going on and how some of this is in the church. The purpose of the letter is obvious at this point. The most serious problem in the Corinthian church was carnality. It was worldliness. Most of the believers, or a great many of the believers, maybe not even most, maybe it was a minority, but some of the believers in this church could not consistently separate themselves from their old selfish and moral pagan ways. They just couldn't give up the old life. They couldn't put the old man to death, so to speak. And it became necessary for Paul to correct, correct this behavior and command that the faithful Christians, in the midst of all these others in this church, that the faithful Christians, he commands them to not only break fellowship with these unrepentant carnal members, but to actually excommunicate them, to remove them from the church. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. So the purpose is corrective, but as I said earlier, God's correction toward a church is, is meant for our good. It's an expression of his love. It's discipline, and this church needed it, and so does ours most days. So does this pastor sometimes. Major themes in this book, uh, since the Corinthian church was plagued by carnality, the major themes of this epistle are obviously focused primarily on correcting carnal, sinful, worldly behavior. Now, when I say carnal, what I'm talking about is fleshly. Uh, being carnal has to do with thinking and acting in our flesh. And 1 Corinthians has 10 major themes. Uh, these are the primary subjects that Paul deals with in the epistle. Number one, carnal unity. So the church is called to have unity, but they had a perverted carnal view of unity and a weird unity. Uh, secondly, number two, carnal service. These people, uh, and by the way, carnal unity is represented in chapters 1 through 3. Number two, carnal service. People were serving not with the right MO, not with the right motive, not with the right attitude. And so there was a carnal service being offered. That's chapter four. Of course, you've got the immorality in chapters five and six. I call that carnal sexuality or worldly sexuality. Paul has to deal with that because I just told you it was incest. And that means there were other things as well. Number four, carnal marriage. These people did not have a right view of marriage. We see this in chapter seven. Uh, uh, number six, carnal, uh, or number five, carnal liberty. That is the abuse of Christian liberty, a carnal view of liberty. That is represented in chapters 8, verse uh, 8, through all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. 
And then number six, finally, you have carnal marriage. There was a goofy view of marriage, chapters uh, 11, verse 2 to 16. And then we had number seven, a strange communion where everyone was getting drunk. I call that carnal communion. We see that in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. And then eight, we have the carnal use of our spiritual gifts. They were misusing the gifts uh, that, that the Holy Spirit had given them for service. We see that in chapters 12 to 14. Number nine, we have a carnal view of resurrection. We see this in verse 15. They didn't see the resurrection properly. And then lastly, the last major theme and carnal thing he corrects is number 10, carnal giving. Carnal giving or carnal stewardship. We see this in chapter 16. And what I basically just gave you were the themes, but really an outline for the book. This is how we're going to study the book. These will be the, 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 the sermon titles or what have you. And believe me, it'll take more than 10 to get through the book. This is just, these are just the big themes and big subjects we'll be dealing with. Now, we've already walked through our brief introduction to 1 Corinthians. It's now time to focus on the very first section, which, by the way, is corrective. Even in, in Paul's greeting, we see some carnal correction. But that's what we're going to be looking at, Paul's greeting. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're only going to get through the first three verses. The greeting is, is longer than this. It goes up to verse 8 or 9, but we're just going to deal with the first three. Rachel asked me, how far are you going? I said, three verses. She goes, oh, that's what you always do in the epistles. So it just uh, you, you move kind of slow, you know, and, and there's just too good of stuff here to just blow through it. I want to pray before we get to work. Lord, we've already walked through a brief introduction. Thank you for that information. Thank you for helping us build some context now we're going to get into the serious stuff, and that's the actual scripture. And so, Lord, I pray that, firstly, you are glorified by this sermon and by our attention, note-taking, whatever it is that we're doing, that you are glorified by our obedience, that we would obey what you've said here because it does very little good just to hear and not be a doer. We need to be hearers and doers. Father, I pray that you help me preach with precision and, and love in my heart, in my attitude, and uh, just protect my tongue and my thoughts and my attitude in this time. And, um, Lord, the last thing I want to do is beat anyone up because what I need to do is look in a mirror and beat myself up because, in my opinion, for myself, I am the chief sinner in this place. I sin all the time. I may not be doing some of the things that these Corinthians were doing, but you know my sins and I know my sins, and I am sorrowful for those things. And so, Lord, just I want to be transparent with our people to a degree, but I want our people to be transparent with you. I pray that you convict them this morning and that you uh, convict them and grace them with that blood of Christ. Once again, it's just for us forever and ever and ever. And restore us unto you if that's what's necessary and help us to live for you. But be glorified now, Lord. Open our hearts and minds to your word. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Let's pick it up at verse 1, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very first thing that we read here. Paul says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. I just stop there. Rather than placing their names at the end of a letter, as we do today, right? We usually write the letter and then sign our name at the bottom. Uh, what the ancient authors usually did, especially the Greeks, is they would put their name right up front. That way, when the person starts reading, they know who the letter is from. They knew who was speaking to them. And we see that right out of the gate here. This allows their readers, the readers that received the letter, to immediately identify the author. 
Paul listed two people here, didn't he? Himself and a man named Sosthenes. And Paul always gave his name at the beginning of his epistles. Literally every one of them. I went and researched it. Every one of them. Um, and, and I think that uh, this is why, or one of the, a good or decent reason why the long-held view of Paul as the author of Hebrews was eventually kind of rejected. You know, the church believed that for very many, 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 many centuries, a millennium. And um, since Paul signed every epistle in, uh, that he wrote in the New Testament, if he had written Hebrews, it's likely that he would have signed his name to it right up front. And there is no name recorded in it. We don't even know who wrote it. I think it may have been Barnabas, somebody who was like Paul but different. But there is no naming there. We don't know. And so, but all the other letters, all of his other epistles, they had, he begins them with essentially an introduction with his name. He did this over and over and over. And Paul tells us that he wrote this epistle with the help of a guy named Sosthenes that we'll talk about in a moment. I want you to notice before we talk about Sosthenes, I want you to notice how Paul states his apostleship. All right? He doesn't just say, I, Paul, wrote this with Sosthenes. He talks about how he was appointed by God uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ or by God and Jesus Christ as an apostle. He declares his apostleship. And he says that his apostleship uh, was by the will of God. Okay, God had made Paul an apostle. Uh, the other apostles that, you know, some of us might be more familiar with, Matthew and, 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 and Peter and those guys, they had nothing to do with the appointment or giving the title of apostle to Paul. In fact, the church in Jerusalem, which was the primary church at the time, it, it had nothing to do with giving Paul this apostleship. Uh, it's pastor I would consider a, a very high-ranking leader, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. That's the half-brother of Jesus, James. He had nothing to do with giving Paul this title or position. He did not appoint him. It was the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who had called Paul to apostleship, who had given him his title and his calling, his appointment. It was Jesus who did this. Acts chapter 9 verse 15. Now listen to how Paul began his letter to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. We studied this book a while ago. It says, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who by the way raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul right there is saying, nobody but Jesus, nobody but God made me an apostle. And he is essentially stating that here at the onset or beginning of 1 Corinthians. Why? Well, sadly, it was necessary for him to reiterate his God-given apostolic title and appointment right here and in other places. Why? Because his authority and writings had come under attack by a group of false teachers literally called super apostles. It sounds like they were in, maybe they'll be in a new Marvel movie, I don't know. They were the super apostles, this is what they were called, this is what they were known as, and not one of the super apostles was even a mediocre or regular apostle. 
they were false teachers. And they are spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. By the way, that's the second epistle to the same church. And they are spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. The super apostles were self-appointed. Better yet, they were Satan-appointed, devil-appointed. They had no God-given authority. They had no rights or responsibilities in the church. Uh, they were like those who uh, today give themselves the title of apostle, fakes, charlatans, posers, con men. You see somebody in some church somewhere calling themselves an apostle. They're just like these fake super apostles. There's no apostles now. To be an apostle, you had to meet Jesus face to face. You had to get your calling an appointment directly from, I'm not talking about through a prayer where you thought you heard his voice or while you were reading scripture or like in the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall where he baptizes himself and starts calling himself an apostle. It doesn't work that way. It never works that way. You had to meet Jesus not just through faith but face to face, physically. And none of the fake apostles in our day or in any day after John the Apostle, none of them can legitimately lay claim to this kind of experience. Plus, the apostolic era ended with the death of the apostle John. He was the last living apostle. There are no other apostles. So Paul, right out of the gate, identifies him by himself by name and by title and says, I am an apostle because of God and Jesus Christ. He's defending or at least reestablishing his apostleship, his authority. It comes under attack in this church because he has to deal with this error and this rejection of him in the very next epistle. Who was Sosthenes? He was, and this is very interesting, he was a leader uh, of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth along with probably Crispus. They may have shared this role or maybe there were multiple synagogues, but he was a leader in the synagogue in Corinth who had been converted under Paul's gospel preaching, just like Crispus. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 4 and verse 17. Now, after ministering in Corinth for 18 months, Paul went to Ephesus and stayed for 27 months, almost three years. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 19. I think what happened was, since Paul met Sosthenes in, in Corinth while he was there for the year and a half preaching the gospel, Sosthenes gets saved and became, becomes kind of a blessing and companion to Paul. And when Paul leaves Corinth after the year and a half, I think Sosthenes went with him because the very next, step was, the very next stop was Ephesus. And so... The, the, if the letter was written by Paul while he was in Ephesus around this time and Sosthenes was involved in the writing of the letter, obviously Sosthenes was there with Paul. So he gets saved, he, he, he becomes a companion of Paul, and he follows Paul to Ephesus. And that's how he's involved in this. That's who he is. Now, it's very obvious that he was there with Paul when this was written. And, uh, and the way this works is back in these days, some of the apostles would use a scribe. They would dictate while the secretary or scribe recorded their words. And that's what we see here. Paul is dictating 
speaking verbally, audibly the letter, and Sosthenes is writing it down. So there's a partnership and companionship there. Sosthenes served as his scribe, and another guy named Sylvanus did that and others. Paul always had a scribe nearby, even while he was in jail. He's probably in jail here. So Sosthenes was a synagogue leader. He was a Jewish convert to Christ, a Messianic Jew. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and he was the scribe who helped Paul put this letter to these Corinthian believers. He's the one who helped him put it together. There is another detail concerning Sosthenes I think is very much worth mentioning, and, and that is that he suffered violent persecution as a Christian. Sosthenes did. Earlier in Corinth, before Paul and Sosthenes left to go to Ephesus, before they left, earlier in Corinth, there was a violent, lethal kind of revolt fired up by the Jews against Paul and the new church and Sosthenes. Okay, so in Corinth, while Paul is preaching there and he's got Sosthenes as a companion and partner, there is a big revolt and what happens is Paul and Sosthenes are dragged before the city council or the city tribunal. They are dragged before it, and what is said of them is they are misleading the people. And actually what was happening is as people are getting converted to Christ, they're abandoning the worship of Aphrodite and all the other stuff, and that's ruining, that's ruining the marketplace because they sold idols and they sold sex and they did all these things. And Paul's preaching, people are being saved, they're turning from their old lives, and it is having an impact even on commerce. And so they drag Sosthenes, they drag Paul before the tribunal, and uh, there was a guy named Galileo. Uh, he was kind of the, the governor or the city mayor at the time, and he's part of the tribunal, and these zealous Jewish fanatics Bring Paul, and, uh, bring Paul and Sosthenes before them, and they're making all these charges against him. And Galileo is like, you know, I, I'm about to go on my lunch break. I don't really have time to hear this. You Jewish fanatics are always doing this, and I, I just don't want to hear it. And so he dismisses their case. So what did they do? In bitter rage, they grab Sosthenes and beat the snot out of him right in front of everyone. That is how he was persecuted. Acts chapter 18 verse 17. Let's move to verse 2. To the church of God. Remember, this is the, the greeting. He has already stated who he is, and he's the apostle, and it's Paul, and he's with Sosthenes, the scribe. Now he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Stop there. This is a loaded verse. This is a doctrinally rich verse. This is a corrective verse. And when I say corrective, I don't mean in a mean spirit. This is meant as a gesture of love to them, but it is corrective. In verse 2a, we'll divide it up three ways. In verse 2a, look at how Paul addresses these believers as the church of God in Corinth. What do you think he's doing here? He is reminding these people of who they are. Why is he doing that? Because some in the congregation, their behavior doesn't sound like church, doesn't sound like those who belong to God. He is reminding them, you 
are the church of God in this city. This is a, not just an address or a greeting, it is a reminder. The church is a, a body of people who belong not to themselves or to any leader or group. You know, you don't belong to Phil's church. You don't belong to Rick Countryman's church. You don't belong to Joe Blow's church. You don't belong to Jim Applegate's church, whatever. You don't belong to someone's church. You belong to the church of God. I just happen to be the pastor here. And sometimes this church acts like it belongs to me. And it gets upset with me when I don't measure up. You need to give me grace too, but you are not mine. You belong to the Lord. Act accordingly. And give me the grace when I need it, which is 24-7, 365. Amen? Hallelujah. Bruce, you're supposed to say, you're not that bad. He's not doing that. He's in full agreement. <laughs> See? Seriously, you belong, if you are in Christ by grace through faith, you belong to the church of God at Modesto. And after doing a little research, after being a pastor for 15 years, 10 years here, five, five or so years at, uh, at, at Big Valley, I have become convinced that most of the locations and, and people that call themselves churches in this town aren't churches at all. They're not. And I don't say that to be cruel or judgmental. They just don't measure up to what this says. They don't hold Christ the same way. They don't hold the Word of God the same way. And God has made so lucidly clear what His church is to be. You can't miss it if you read this, study the Scripture. You can miss it if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So you, you are part of a real church of God here with real converts and real believers. But it is the church of God, not the church of Phil. If it becomes the church of Phil, I'm packing my bags and finally moving to Arizona. I don't want that on me. This is Jesus' church. He is the, the senior pastor. He is the head. He is the leader. And he is telling them this right out of the gate. You are part of this body of believers called God's church at Corinth. Very, very important that we get this. Uh, the church is, the is a body of people who belong not to themselves nor to any leader, but to God. Believers, whether pastors, elders, deacons, or you know, just regular servants and members in the church, all together compose the church of God. All together we compose the church of God. This kind of servant, that kind of servant, we're all the same in that regard. We are not our own individually or collectively, but have all been bought with the price of Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. Christ did not shed his blood to buy a people to give to me. He bought them for himself. They belong to him, not to me. I'm just an under-shepherd. I'm just an under-shepherd. Now, since we belong to God, this means our children, our possessions also belong to God. This is something that we fail to understand pretty frequently, including myself. This is why we must be godly stewards and use our time, our talent, our treasure for the glory of God in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I and what I own or what I I don't even technically own it, but I and what I have I belong, and what I have belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. So it's not just that 
that God owns the church. He owns the people in the, he owns the people of the church and he owns everything that they own. In fact, everything that we have has been given by him out of love and out of a responsibility for us to steward. And I think, you know, our country pushes individualism so dramatically that it, it creates in us this individualistic spirit and attitude, and it's not right. We do not belong to ourselves. What I have does not belong to me. It all belongs to God. And this goes, believe it or not, for unbelievers as well. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. There's a wonderful psalm that speaks to that. And so what we have, who we are, we belong to Him. And the church of God is a generous church, or at least should be a generous church. Why? Because God has been generous to her, right? We should be generous as God's people because God has been generous to His people. He crushed His only begotten Son to literal a bloody pulp and death for my sins, for your sins, for the church's sins, for the elect's sins, for the people of God's sins. He crushed Him willfully and deliberately so that I could be liberated and freed and become part of his family. He, he has done this for me. He has done this for you. If you are in Christ, he has done this for us. So I should be generous because of this. Uh, God is, is generous and we should be generous. He gives his church, her, the bride of Christ, his means of grace, the preaching of the word, communion, baptism, prayer. He gives us these things so that she, the church, can be refreshed and empowered and renewed week to week. He sanctifies his church, her, his church, his bride, the bride of Christ, with his word and, and makes us, the church, like Jesus more and more, degree by degree. He, another way that God is generous to his church is that he gives her pastors and elders who are to teach and protect her. That's what the elders at this church are called to do. Uh, he gives her servants who serve the body. He gives her spiritual gifts. What for? For service unto him, certainly, but for our own benefit and good and edification. He gives her resources. Why? So that no member of his church goes hungry. So that no member of his church goes shirtless or shoeless. Hear me and listen to me. He is so Enormous, enormously, perpetually, and eternally good to the church. In fact, I would say that it is impossible, because God is so good to His church, it is impossible for the church of God to actually stop and count her blessings, because her blessings are endless, perpetual, never-ending, especially when we begin to ponder the spiritual blessings that we see in for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Try to get your mind around election and those blessings. This is big, big, big stuff. So, so because God is so incredibly generous to his church, we should be a generous church. We should be a generous people. Now, the opposite of generosity is stingy carnality, using our time, talent, and treasure primarily on us. Robbing God of the resources he provides so that he can bless others through us. Malachi chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus actually called those who selfishly refuse to invest God's resources. He called them wicked, slothful servants. Matthew 25 verse 26. 
That's an indictment against us when we take everything that we have and use it on ourselves rather than investing it in, in the gospel, in the advancement of the gospel, in the benefit of Steve or Cameron or Dennis. You know, we're, we're using it like in Acts chapter 2. We're using it to help one another. When we, when we refuse to do that and it's all about us and we don't give, maybe we give of our time, but we really don't give of our treasure. And that's, a, that's a, one of the things that needs to be corrected to this church that has plagued us since day one. We have members here whom God loved and crushed his son for who just can't seem to give of their treasure and not very much of it. That has never made any sense to me. We ought to be the most generous people in the world with our treasure. Firstly, we realize that it's not actually ours. Secondly, look at what has been done for us. This carnal selfishness was part of the Corinthian church and had to be corrected in the very last chapter, chapter 16. But what I'm telling you, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone. You know who you are. I'm trying to say, stop and think about how generous God has been to you. That should inspire generosity in us. I mean, what did we read earlier from that Puritan? Uh, it was from one of the Thomases. There's about a thousand of them. Which one was it? Brooks. I should know this. I'm the one that put the slides together. What an idiot. What did it talk about? Being thankful for a drop of that generous grace. We should be the most generous thankful people on the face of the earth. And the only way to get there is by the incremental understanding in increments. We begin to understand more and more and more of what we are and who God is and what he's done for us. Oh my goodness, it's, it's wonderful. He's so generous and so generous and yet we are so carnal at times and so stingy, so much so that we act wicked and slothful. It ought not be this way. Verse 2b, um, I want you to notice how Paul called the Corinthian church saints. This is yet another corrective reminder. He called them not just the church of God, that's a, that's a hit for them, but also he calls them saints. These men, women, and probably some children in the church, because God is very much into saving children, just like he saves sinful adults, they were saints. And this is not because they worked hard and sacrificed more than other Christians and somehow earned the title. It's not because of some ecclesiastical council that gave them this title. They were saints because God called them to be saints. Galatians 1, 6, Ephesians 4, 1 and verse 4, Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, 1 Timothy 6, 12. I could go on and on and on. They're in your bulletin. God, when he calls a sinner to salvation, he makes them and calls them to sainthood in that very moment. I like what MacArthur said at this point. A saint, as the term is used in the New Testament, is not a specially pious Christian who has been canonized by the papacy. The Greek word translated saint is hagios, meaning set apart one or holy one. I love that. Every true Christian has been set apart. That The papacy doesn't tell us when we've been set apart and when we've gotten to the title or earned sainthood. The papacy didn't have anything to do with it. It's apostate. It's an antichrist. God is the one who determined this for us. When he called us to himself in power and regenerated us and saved us, brought us to himself, gave us the, the gifts of repentance and faith in that moment, and we exercised them with joy, 
in that very moment, not only were we justified and adopted in these things, but we were determined by Him to be for all and all and all and ever and ever and ever. Saints, we are saints. It's not an earned title, it's given by grace. And this is what's so astounding here, that He's calling this church that is plagued by sin and, 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 and some of the most heinous, worst sins, He's, Paul is calling them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saints. Well, we don't typically think of one of our brothers and sisters that, that, that's gone off the rails and is in unrepentance or something like that and they're wrapped up in some kind of sin. Saint is not something that comes to mind. A sinner that needs to repent is what comes to mind. That person, if they are truly in Christ and they have backslidden or whatever, they are still a saint. You don't lose your, your saintly position, your sainthood, because you sin. If that were the case, I'd be a saint at noon. I wouldn't be a saint at 12.15. At 12.35, I'd be a saint. And then at 12.45, I'd lose it again, right? It doesn't work that way. I love this. This is so, so good. He's calling these, these brothers and sisters who are wrestling and struggling with sin, he calls them saints because that's what they were they were saints because they had been sanctified from hagiazo the greek word set apart from sin made made holy in christ jesus by his own sacrificial work on the cross christ sanctifies those who believe him he sets them apart for himself he cleanses them and then over time he sanctifies and perfects them macarthur again According to Scripture, every true believer in Jesus Christ, whether faithful or unfaithful, whether uh, well-known or unknown, leader or follower, is a set-apart person, a holy person, a saint. Isn't that wonderful? In the biblical sense, the most obscure believer today is just as much a saint as the Apostle Paul. This is the believer's position in Christ. Man, I tell you what, I emailed him that, and then he... He figured out how to write that down. Then I went and borrowed it from him. What a statement. And that is such a wonderful, truthful statement that, that carves out for us our identity in Christ. That is our eternal identity even when we have those bad days, even when we give ourselves over to these sins that, are, that, that, that so easily beset us and give in to these temptations. We are still who we are. Are. I could never sin my way out of being the child of my parents. Oh, they got mad. But at what point could I literally separate myself in the flesh and blood from, from being born of them and carrying their DNA and these sorts of things? Impossible. I could never do it. You cannot do it in Christ either. You cannot do it. We are saints. That is our position. And again, reiterating, because I think it's important, and the MacArthur quote is done, even though he got it from me. Christians do not merit. He didn't get it from me. Christians do not merit sainthood. This is so important for us because why? Roman Catholicism only saints those whom it thinks are especially obedient to the papacy. Our part, we don't, we, we don't, we don't make ourselves saints. You're already a saint if you're in Christ, right? You can't be any more of a saint. You can't be any less or any more of a saint in Christ. Sin doesn't make you less and holiness doesn't make you more. You are what you are, like Popeye, right? I am what I am. I'm a saint. Our part is to claim holiness and sainthood 
by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we are to do, Acts 26, 18. It's not wrong to claim that for yourself, by faith in Christ. That's what you are. We have a new nature, and we have escaped the corruptions of the world, uh, possessing all things related to life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. We are set-apart saints. And that, my friends, is another expression or gesture of God's generosity to us. Paul, Paul's declaring all the Corinthian believers to be saints was, I think it was just an, a, an astonishing declaration in light of the things that this church was dealing with, right? I mean, like I said, it's, it's not really natural for us to think of someone who's in habitual sin or does some gross things. It's not, we don't think of them as being saintly. And they aren't being saintly in that kind of meaning of the word. But if they're in Christ, the sin doesn't cast them out of their sainthood. So I think it's astonishing that he calls them this here because they weren't acting very saintly. There's no doubt. Not all of them, but some. Uh, they were particularly carnal and worldly. Yet in his opening words, Paul stressed that every one of them who had truly believed in Jesus Christ was set apart as in God's church at Corinth and was a saint. This is such a great reminder. I need to be reminded of, of this true identity that I have been set apart, that I'm a saint. I need to be reminded of that pretty often. And, and I would just say that Rachel is, part, part of marriage is, is for your spouse to remind you of your need of this. Right? You understand what I just said? Cameron's like, I'm just going to plead the fifth on this. I'm not going to say anything because I'm next to her right now. Right? <laughs> Part of, marriage, part of marriage is the sanctifying of one another. And I'll tell you what, man, I, you know, I, um, I'd still be a saved man, so to speak, if I didn't have Rachel in my life. God saved me, but I wouldn't be sanctified at the same measure and the same ferocity at times. No, I mean, she does things for me that I don't even realize at times that are actually quite annoying sometimes. But what, what, what she does... She does, you know, she'll, she'll hear me mouth off or she'll see some carnal behavior in me and she'll go, babe, right? And I'm like, you're right, I'm sorry, Lord. Three minutes later, babe, I, I know, I keep doing it. This is what she does. It's part of her, God using her to sanctify and to remind me of who I am. That is a reminder of who I am. It's less of a correction and more of a reminder. Right? Because that's the battle for us in our daily lives, is to remember who we are and to act accordingly. Because we do have this residual flesh that, and carnality that tries to lead us astray at every moment. And we do have a powerful adversary who's always on us. But my wife, God uses her so mightily, and I'm thankful for it. I am. I'm thankful for it because I don't think I'd be the man I am without her. I really don't. Because God's like, I've called you to a very difficult task, Rachel. There he is. <laughs> There's no other woman in the entire universe that can handle me. We were talking about this last night. I can't imagine being with somebody else. She can't ima I can see how she could want <laughs> I mean, getting fatter, more gray, belligerent, jerk, you know. But it, we just, we're, we're, God meant us to be together from eternity past because we would so mutually benefit each other through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for Rachel. Thank God for Rachel. You should be thankful to Rachel. But don't call this the church of Rachel. It's the church of God, right? This is the church of God. Lo babe, I love you. You have been such a blessing to me. We're, tomorrow's our anniversary, by the way. 
okay? Yeah, we have a drop box in the back for gifts. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. I, I just think it's astonishing. Back to this sermon here. I don't know how this happens. I just get on these tangents. It's like a rabbit hole, and I just keep going, and then I find Alice down there. I'm like, I'm out of here. This is creepy. Big bunnies. Let's get back to the text. In verse chapter, or not chapter, in verse 2c, Paul says something else here. He tells these Corinthian saints that they are part of something much bigger than their little church. He really does. He says, they have been brought together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, the, the, the Corinthian saints, these Corinthian believers, this Corinthian church, they, they were part of God's global church, right? God is Christians, brothers and sisters, his children all over the world, saints from, from every tribe and tongue, every nation, every generation. He is telling them that you are part of something much bigger than yourselves. And he's also saying in a way that these men and women here, these, these, these Christians who are struggling at this church, he is telling them also that, that you are not alone in your temptations, that you are not alone in your struggles. In fact, he's saying in a way, indirectly, that, that Christians in every place, they're, they're all fighting the same good fight and they're, they're, they're all battling similar old baggage. And this is why Christian fellowship is so important for us. We need each other. We need other believers. We were never meant to fight sin and Satan alone. Never. We can't make it on our own. One of the devil's greatest tricks and ploys is isolation. When we stumble into serious sin, and I would say just about any sin, but some sins I think are, are just a little bit more devastating, although it all kills and all causes death. Romans 6.23, right? That's the wage. But when we stumble into sin, and maybe even a more serious sin, our first inclination is to disconnect and hide. Just as Adam and Eve did that after they sinned in the garden, Genesis 3.8, right? God comes, God comes down. He was actually there the whole time. He's there, and he calls out to them, and they're hiding behind bushes. And this is what we attempt to do. And, and I tell you what, we get involved in sin, and we, we, it's the devil's trick, and we follow the trick, and we disconnect. This is, this is when we become even more endangered or most endangered when we're isolated. The, you know, the, the, what happens is the roaming Roaring lion, he preys on quote-unquote solo artist Christians. He, he doesn't just prey on them, he devours them. He eats them alive. He snatches them like an impala on the Serengeti and eats them while they're kicking and screaming. This is what our adversary does. They become utterly controlled by their carnality and consumed by their sin. 1 Peter 5, 8, that's what it means to be devoured by the devil, is to be just, con just consumed with and by your sin. When sin eats you up, isolates and eats you up, that is the devil eating you up. It really is. You need to hear this. We either fight together or we perish. Now, I, I know that we cannot lose our salvation. I know that. But I tell you what, we go solo because we've got sin in our life. We will be devoured. We will be eaten up. Will we lose our salvation? Not if you're a true believer. But let me tell you something right now. I don't think being eaten alive by a roaring lion feels good. Sin feels good in a moment. 
and then it feels horrible forever. This is a, a very dangerous game. We need to stick together in fellowship and fight the good fight of faith together. We are better linked arm in arm. A cord of three strands is stronger. Amen? And, and people in church don't understand this today. Now, we all know, think about this, we all know saints who have stumbled into sin, who have walked away from the church and are now, or maybe in the past, if at all, following Jesus. You, you, you know the pattern I'm talking about here, right? Those who profess Christ get entangled with some kind of sin, and maybe they start going to some kind of discipline or whatever, or they just go into hiding. You make contact with them later on because you love them. You find that they are the exact opposite of what a Christian is. That, to me, is what it means to be devoured. Now, it does not mean that they have lost their salvation, but they've lost everything else. That's a scary thought, and we all know them. There are people that have been part of our church that have done that, and it is tragic and it is sad. We cannot make it on our own. I would never go out hunting on the Serengeti without a team or without really high-powered weaponry, without the Iron Man suit, right? I mean, think about it. Why would we think that we could... I mean, we have to put on our own armor, Ephesians, right? But we still have to fight linked arm-in-arm arm with our brothers and sisters because we can't, we can't take on all this adversarial attack by ourselves. We've known people who have walked away. We do. And I tell you, if they're true Christians, they will eventually return to the Lord and to the fellowship of believers. If they don't, they may never return, may never join another church or anything like that because they're probably not a true believer and the Spirit hasn't regenerated them. And what Paul is essentially saying is that you're in the midst of a great struggle here. And some of them weren't struggling with sin at all. They were enjoying it, which is really sad, and I think we do that too. But they were not alone, and that's the point right here in this, the end of this verse. They were not alone. And guess what? We are not alone. May we never develop the bad habit of forsaking the gathering as some are accustomed to doing. Hebrews 10.25 This is spiritual suicide. To allow sin to separate us from our church family, that's a type of spiritual suicide. You won't make it on your own. You will give yourself over and over to that carnality. It will deepen. It will widen. You will justify. You will rationalize. And you will begin to engage in even more wicked, sinful behavior. And you will get to the place, hopefully, if you're in the Lord, of deep, deep conviction. But you will also grieve the Holy Spirit as you suppress His calling on you. Don't do this. Don't get in the habit of not coming regularly. Two reasons why you ought to miss church. Vacation and sickness. That's it. That's it. There's no other rationale. There's no other reason. It's too dangerous for us. And he is saying you're not alone. And I think that sin, since it isolates, we feel alone in the midst of that. But we always have God next to us. And he is telling us, go back to your church and be with your brothers and sisters. There is no shame. There is nothing to be ashamed of there. There is nothing to be ashamed of with you. And the way that we love each other will help people do this. If we're judgmental and critical, forget about it. I wouldn't come back. I'd find another church. Number, or let's, let's go to verse 3. This is our last verse. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the last portion we're looking at. This was Paul's classic salutation, his greeting. Each of his epistles begins with the exact same wording or some slightly different variation of it. 
examples. Uh, Romans 1, 7, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where it starts to vary a little bit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, maybe he was in a hurry. He's just like, Grace to you and peace. Right? But it's always kind of the same. Paul's classic salutation was probably the inspiration for the naming of MacArthur's resource ministry, Grace to You. I think so. Grace is charis in Greek. It means favor. Paul is saying, may you have favor from God our Father, which is in Christ Jesus. Peace is irene in Greek. Uh, it means to experience the total well-being, prosperity, and security that is associated with God's presence among his people. The Hebrew equivalent is, of course, shalom. You've heard that word. Paul spoke of this same peace in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, right, the irene, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this particular peace is for Christians alone because only Christ can give it. John 14, verse 27. The world does not have this peace. It cannot supply this peace. Everyone today wants peace, peace, peace. They'll never find this peace unless they submit to Christ. It comes from God alone in Christ alone. Uh, an excellent synonym for this word peace here, and really just for the word peace in general, is tranquility. Right? We know that word. We don't use it very often. It's not real popular. People don't use hardly any good words anymore today. Tranquility is a great way to look at this word in this verse here. Uh, and that is essentially what Paul is saying here. Uh, he is talking about a tranquility or calmness of the mind. Why is he saying that? Because he knows sin stirs people up. He knows sin disrupts, disturbs, robs us of joy and these sorts of things. And so he is right at the onset offering them the peace of God that is in Christ alone because he wants them to calm down and start to think clearly, mellow out and listen and read my letter. That is what he is saying here. Uh, sin makes us uneasy, it makes us nervous, it floods us with guilt, shame, it, it gives us a sense of condemnation, and this, of course, is why we try to hide when we're in sin. Paul knows what some of the Corinthian Christians were doing. He knows their sins and the impact their carnality was having on the congregation, hence the reason why we have the letter. He knows there is infighting, there's strife, there's disunity, he knows there's immorality, he knows that unchecked sin brings chaos. And he, what? To counter that, he offers them peace, or better yet, tranquility from God in Christ Jesus because it was available to them. Why? Because the war was over. Christ was victorious at Calvary. His finished work secured their peace with God forever. No amount of sin could ever destroy the peace Jesus bought for them and bought for all believers with His own blood on the cross. Peace with God is therefore continual, not circumstantial, permanent, not piecemeal, eternal, not ending. The believer is never at war with God. God does not war against His children. He wars against His enemies and He defeats them 100%. He does, however, discipline his children. Why? Because he 
loves them. Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12.6. If our tranquility or peace seems gone, it's probably because of personal sin or because of the sins of others, not because of God. God's peace with His saints is immutable, unchanging, just as He is immutable and unchanging. The way to experience this peace from God, even in the person who's already repented and trusted in Christ, the way to experience it, have an experiential level of it, is through repentance because sin is self-crippling. Uh, sin is like a, a disability that keeps us from the experiential enjoyment of God's peace. We cannot walk in this transcendent tranquility while we have ongoing sin in our lives. Sin crushes our comprehension of God's peace. It cripples our capacity to walk in it. The more sin we have, the less peace we will experience. But the source always remains the same. Peace is always flowing. Tranquility is always flowing from God to His people like a mighty river. It is never cut off. But sin is like a dam that inhibits its inner flow or even its comprehension. Repentance, however, is like the dynamite that blows the dam apart, allowing the peace of God to saturate and stabilize our spirit. See, the peace is here, but sin keeps us from embracing it, keeps us from enjoying it, keeps us from understanding that it's here and comprehending it. But it's always right here, and that is what Paul is telling them. You have favor. You have all the favor you will ever want or need or desire in God through Christ, and you have all the peace, but it's the sin in the church and in your individual lives that is keeping you from the experiential aspect and enjoyment of it. Peace is here. It's my sin that blocks my enjoyment of it, and that is what he is teaching them here. This is the truth. It always flows from God to his people, always. If we are in Christ by grace through faith, we are saints. And we are never alone. We are surrounded by other saints here at RHC and even beyond in other churches. We have grace and peace from God our Father in Christ Jesus. These truths are meant to remind us of who we are and of what we have in Jesus. So we can what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. And these truths that we've learned today, they're not only meant to, to enable or empower or encourage a, a, a righteous, mannerful, if that's even a word, walk unto the Lord. There's a double meaning here. They are also meant to lead us to repentance if we have ongoing sin in our lives. If we will repent and turn from our sin, the sense of divine favor we once enjoyed and the divine peace that had set our minds and hearts at ease before, these things shall return to us. My question as I end is, what is God calling you to do today? And my exhortation is, listen to His voice and obey his word.